Welcome, Welcome to, to Modern, Modern Figures Podcast. Podcast, a show where we're elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. We're, we're your hosts, hosts, Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen. This podcast is sponsored by the National Center for Women in Information Technology, or NCWIT. NCWIT is a nonprofit organization that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase participation of all women in the field of computing. Kyla and I are representatives of the Institute for African American Mentoring and Computing Sciences, or IMCS, which serves as a national resource for Black and African American students, faculty, and industry professionals in computing. Special thanks goes to our listeners who contribute to the podcast by supporting our online store, which you can find at our website, www.modernfigurespodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so today we have with us Isa Watson. Hey, girl. Hi. <laughs> who is the CEO of Squad, which is a software company whose social platform helps people build meaningful communities. And she's also one of INC Magazine's 30 Under 30 in 2017, and she's been featured by Fast Company and Forbes, among many other platforms. <laughs> and she's also a writer for Entrepreneur, which is another venue where you can learn about how to be uh, a business owner. A boss. A boss, <laughs> yeah. She's also a Leaders in Tech Fellow, which is an awesome program for leaders to go to Silicon Valley and be able to build high-performing and culturally healthy organizations. If you didn't know, she's a classical pianist as well. Which is amazing. And if she, that wasn't enough of accolades, she's also the former VP of product, product Strategy at J.P. Morgan Chase. She was a digital product manager. She was a chemist at Pfizer, MBA from MIT. She has an mm. MS in pharmacology, <laughs> a BS in chemistry. Girl, what don't you do? <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> that sounds oh. very accurate. Well, we're so happy to have you here yeah. today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, you came all the way from New York, which is one of my favorite places to go visit but not live and <laughs> I kind of agree with you these days yeah yeah we were talking about the weather earlier and how crazy it's been it's mm -hmm. crazy everywhere but I feel like you New York might be in a unique space at the moment oh yeah mm -hmm. okay so I met Isa at a conference that's put on by AAAS mm -hmm. the American Association for the Advancement of Science and I heard her on a panel of former scholars who'd come through one of the programs that they support. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's perfect. I sent <laughs> Kyla a text message. I was like, we absolutely need to get her on this show. Yes. And I went up to talk to her and I was nervous. I never get nervous talking to people. <laughs> But she was also like standing on the stage and I was on the ground. So I feel like that was part of it. But we actually had something in common, which is very cool. So I work part time with our graduate school here at UF. And Isa is very good friends with the dean of our graduate school, <laughs> Dean Henry Frierson. So that's very awesome. Yeah, yeah and it is awesome. She was willing to come out, I think, because of Hank Frierson. So shout out to him. For making things happen. And for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And for you. Yeah. So I, we had a good conversation in D.C. I appreciate that very much. That makes me feel a lot better. Aww. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you that you would want people to know? You know, it's really interesting because 
sitting in forums like this, people were like, what are your degrees? What are your, you know, where'd you go to school? What do you do? What's been your career? But the reality is that, you know, it always starts with a human component. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I talk about my journey and I talk about my story, I always start from my values because everything that I do in life stems from the values that my parents instilled in me. So growing up, I am a Caribbean and American. I am one of six kids. So you can imagine how busy the house was. <laughs> like, Where are you in the six? I'm third from the top. Oh, wow. But mm. it's, it's tricky, though, because I'm like a hybrid. I'm like sometimes the oldest, the youngest. <laughs> you know, I, I like to have a little bit of fluidity in there. Okay. Um, but when I was growing up, my dad was an engineer. My mom stayed at home for a good deal of my life um, in a I used to joke that I would have to go to school, get my homework done, and then I'll have to come home and do my mom's homework. (laughs) Okay. So that was like, I, like, everything was like, by the way, mom is here with us, hanging out. Hey, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I would say the things my parents really instilled in me were the following one was hard work. Like, mm-hmm. no matter what, you have to work hard. There's no shortcuts, especially for people that look like us. Right. And you have to run two blocks when someone else runs, like, half a block. Say that. Yeah. Um, kindness. You know, no matter where you where you are, who you're interacting with, it's really important to just be a kind person. Um, the third was humility. You know, my parents are always very quick to remind me, like, no matter what, what circles you're rolling in, you better know where you came from. Right. And yeah. you better recognize that, you know, you may think you're this, but you can always do better. Mm-hmm. There's always room for improvement. Um, and so, you know, those were the things that my childhood were, was rooted in. Mm. And my parents were very much into experiential parenting, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, right, from an academic perspective. And so every summer after first grade, I was in some summer enrichment program. Girl, same. Oh, wow. Some <laughs> summer enrichment program. Same. Yeah. And it, I think my parents maybe found out early that I had some type of, you know, lean to STEM. Mm-hmm. And so they just used to, like, have me essentially shop around subjects. So oh, once, one summer was life. engineering. Next summer is biology. Next summer is physics. Whatever the case is, and I kind of end up falling into chemistry mm-hmm. after trying a bunch of different things, um, and so that's kind of how my my upbringing started, and you know my background in STEM started. You know the roots. That's amazing. I I don't think I've met anyone who has a similar story to mine in in that regard. Mm-hmm. Generally, people are like, "Well, my parents." They didn't know what to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) But in in my case, my my dad, he was an accountant in school, but worked for AT&T for 30 years Mm. and was very, like, computing inclined. And my mom is an attorney. Like, so neither of them really knew how to handle someone who was like, I like this math and science and applying it to things. I like building yeah. bridges. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I like building things. I like taking stuff apart and putting right. it back together. Right. And that was something that my dad used to do with me a lot. So my dad was a computer engineer and every part of the computer, I knew what it was, mm-hmm. right? I knew how to replace the parts of the computer. He would make me do it. That is cool. I, I would drive a car. My dad's view is you shouldn't 
engage with anything where you don't know how it works. So I was probably like one of the only girls in my very preppy high school (laughs) that knew what was going on under the hood of a car. Okay. And so the building, the just understanding how things work, the taking things apart, Mm -hmm. putting it back together, that was totally my jam. It's definitely like a telltale sign of an engineer. Yeah. And sometimes people think, oh, that's destructive because I would take things apart, not necessarily (laughs) put them back together correctly. Right. You tried. Yeah, exactly. Tried. Tried. It's all about the learning. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so there's a story about how uh, when you were seven <laughs> that your father bought you the components to a computer and made you build it rather right. than just getting you a computer. My dad was always at the compact store. Do you remember compact? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So he would buy the parts of a computer and we would build it. Mm-hmm. That is cool. And my mom would be in the background like, oh my God, that doesn't have warranty. <laughs> and it was like, do you want the computer to have warranty or do you want your daughter to learn? So, okay. you know, we that always prioritize my learning. So thank you, mom, for that. That's sweet. Oh, that that's great. Sweet. So we didn't need warranty anyways. That was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all had it. <laughs> like that's I got fine. this. That's fine. <laughs> so you went to a prep high school. Probably got influenced by chemistry at that point. Maybe took a class and realized that's what I want to do. Deeper or? than that. So my. You know, I have to credit a lot of the success that I have and a lot of the tenacity that I have to my parents Mm -hmm. because they were very critical in creating opportunities for me and showing how do you create those opportunities because the reality is that opportunities don't generally just sit, just like fall from the sky and like land on our laps. And so my parents actually found out about this program called Project Seed at the time, sponsored by American Chemical Society, mm. and got me into the program. I don't even think that anyone from my school really knew about it. So um, I spent summers at UNC Chapel Hill in the lab working oh, wow. for a, a you know a professor. So mm-hmm. my first summer, I was 14. I just turned 15. I was you know, working on an organic chemistry project, uh, you wow. know, formation of spiral ketals through cross-metathesis. That is unheard of. Yeah. And then on top of that, because <laughs> I had to, like, teach Breeze myself organic. crazy face <laughs> on the side. I, I had to teach myself organic chemistry at, like, 14. Like, and, oh my, I can't. But I killed it in college, <laughs> nope. though, so. Yeah, because you've seen it already. You can teach I've the class. I've seen it. Probably. So... Yeah, wow. Yeah, That's... I have my first 14-year-old coming in the lab this summer. I don't know what to do. Like, <laughs> treat like... them like you would treat anyone else. Right. I actually think they're more resilient than you think. Like, I just yeah. kind of got thrown in, and I I did my thing. And yeah. then I took that research and presented it all across the country wow. in different competitions. And again, there was one competition that I wanted to get into, but I was too young. Mm-hmm. And so my my mom got me into the competition, actually won fourth place among grad students in high school. That's amazing. So you're like, I'm going to just skip college and then (laughs) just put me in grad school. Okay. That's great. Okay. And then, so you did go to college and Mm -hmm. you went to Hampton. The real HU. Exactly. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Had to come fairly soon. Yeah. Hampton was such a formative, you know, just incredible experience for me. I think that, you know, a lot of times in this society, we're trained that, you know, we are, we have to go to the Ivy Leagues and, you know, have to go to Prince Frederick, et cetera. But going to Hampton was just such a formative experience for me and like grounding me in like who I was and being comfortable in my own skin. 
Yeah, that's been like a common theme. Like a lot of our guests who've come that went to an HBCU for their undergrad, like that's Mm -hmm. been a very formative time for them to like gain confidence and not have to do a very difficult science or engineering major without, you know, all the overhead and microaggressions and other things that could happen to PWI and then go on for a graduate degree and just have just this resilience and Mm -hmm. just the sense of self to say, I know I can do this. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, It's really special, too, because I did my research. I knew I wanted a chemistry degree, so I went to visit the chemistry department. Mm -hmm. My mom took me to the chemistry department in my (laughs) senior high school, and I was talking to a lot of the students, and I was looking at what did people from the previous classes do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People went to medical school, went to PhD programs, went to dental programs, all at, like, Harvard, Penn, MIT, Caltech, it was very, like Hopkins, Mm. it was very consistently top tier. And it was very few people who didn't. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm good. (laughs) So how did you move from chemistry into, uh, I guess, the next stage of your... Wall Street. Yeah, Yeah. because it's a very different path than most people take. I really enjoy chemistry. In fact, I still have a lot of chemist friends and I have them talk chemistry to me so I don't forget the language. (laughs) It's important. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I was a discovery chemist at Pfizer. Mm -hmm. So I was Mm -hmm. focused on Google kindness activators and I really enjoyed it. You know, and I also was wanting to be on the diabetes team because there's so much diabetes in my family and so I could Mm -hmm. actually like feel really connected to what I was doing. But... Also, being in the lab, I felt a little lonely as well. Mm, It can be a little isolating. Yeah. You come home, you like reenter society at the end of the day, and no (laughs) one knows what you're talking about. You can't talk about anything to anybody. And my parents were so sweet. You know, I would come home and I would say, you know, this one, four, seven, ten, touch as a cyclodecane. And then I like put the, you know, this molecule in this, you know, carbon and they're like that sounds great <laughs> but that's wonderful honey <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the the reality is that I wanted something where I could I was getting to a personality place where I wanted to interact more mm-hmm. and then on top of that in pharma if you're if you're on the discovery side I was literally conceptualizing the first molecules to put in the pipeline wow you don't see the impact of anything yeah. until 20 years from now. Yeah. Like yeah. I will be retired <laughs> 20 right. years from now, you know? And so I was missing that, you know, the direct impact, the direct impact. Yeah. And so I decided, I said, you know what? I want to go into the business realm with my science background and went to business school at MIT. And why MIT? Yeah. I, MIT was my first choice. So I applied mm. to Slewis schools, you know, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Penn, but MIT was that one place where you had the perfect combination of people that were genius and humble. Mm-hmm. I didn't find that as much in my experience as some of the other places no, I was looking point. at. Yeah. yeah, I think too, you were in a space where you were interacting with people who are like on the cusp of discovery in a lot of different scientific fields too by being at MIT. So maybe that was something that... It definitely attracted me because I took classes at MIT main campus and I took some, I took a few science oriented Mm. classes there too. You're a little stamp. Um, (laughs) And, you know, MIT was actually from an MBA perspective. People don't think about MIT, but MIT is the number three business school. Mm. Who knew? Um, and so when I got in, I withdrew my application from everywhere else. Wow. 
That is what, so. Did you have that same feeling of like you know, like being the only one and people not relating to what you do when you come home, or could you come home and like say this is what I did and people are like, got it. <laughs> In business school, there was more of a community, more of a language that's accessible. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. It's all about like accessibility of the language, and I did a ton of different projects in business school spanning marketing. I moved out to China for a few months, oh, wow. worked over there. Um, but I kind of fell into Wall Street. Yeah. I saw Interesting. It, it was accidental. Usually people are working their way to Wall Street. And you're like, I just fell over I there. I fell into I Wall Street. I tripped on the curb and it was there. <laughs> <laughs> I felt, when I, when I went to business school, I said, I am going to become a business development person in pharma. But... In retrospect, I realized that was partly due to my insecurity. Mm -hmm. I had gone into school with people that had years at Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and Bain Mm -hmm. and BCG who had these really interesting business experiences. And I I couldn't tell you the the day I stepped on campus what EBITDA was, what a cash flow statement was. (laughs) I could tell you like how to read that NMR, (laughs) but that, you know, my skill set was very specific. And so I was like, oh, no one's going to want to hire me because I don't have Mm -hmm. business skills. And so when I started interacting with recruiters, they were like, oh my god you study chemistry and i was like yeah you know what chemistry is because it's not what you do (laughs) (laughs) so that's when that kind of opened up my my realm and i got you know recruited isn't that interesting because i think a lot of people don't realize how many industries need people who have this perspective from a stem discipline Yeah. yeah because oftentimes when you're when you're attracting talent to come into your industry right like there are plenty of people who understand the business side of things. Mm -hmm. There are very few people who can take very technical content and translate it into the language that other people can understand. Yeah. And I also think that's sometimes our pitfall as scientists as well, you know, that, that communication and that translation to plain English. So when I was presenting all across, you know, the country, my grad advisors would say, if you can't explain this to your grandmother Mm -hmm. and maybe let's, let's assume she speaks (laughs) a different language. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not quite there yet. And so um, even I can tell you that I'm a chemist. I can tell you that I did organic chemistry, environmental chemistry, material science. But what I extract from that and how I communicate to the business world, I have very strong analytical skills. Mm -hmm. I have very strong technical communication skills. I'm very strong with data analytics. Right. And those Mm -hmm. are the things that people over there understand Mm -hmm. that we have to summarize about our skill set and I think a lot of times we don't summarize our skill set well yeah because we're in science we're like I apply this skill set to this very specific problem so you talk about the very specific problem and not like the overarching this is the skill that I use to solve that problem right exactly yeah there's a new field that's emerging very strongly right now and here in our College of Journalism at UF, we have the STEM Translational Communication Center. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's all they do. They focus on trying to help people like us communicate our science to like <laughs> normal people. Yeah, Because I think our academic spaces are very much about maintaining this like air of elitism. Yeah. yeah. And you we can understand what, what, what I'm do. doing. Yeah. I don't need, you know, a lay person to understand what I'm doing. But ultimately, a lot of our funding is provided by the general public, right? Yeah. 
tax dollars that are mm-hmm, funding right. a lot of the research we're doing. Yeah, and you have to justify to taxpayers. Like, there's a whole document, yep. like, for example, NSF. They have to write. We have, we have two different versions of the abstract we have to write when we get the money. <laughs> it's like the technical version for everybody who understands all the jargon and then the public-facing abstract that, right. like, breaks everything down into why is this important? How is it going to benefit society? And that part is a challenge. And I tried to start, like, writing things about my research on Twitter because mm-hmm. if you can concisely say things in a hundred and something characters mm-hmm. in a language that people understand, like that's a really, really good skill. But also keep in mind, extending from the grant application and grant writing world, your science has very limited impact yeah. because the ability to bring your science to the world, to materialize your science is very interdisciplinary, yeah. whether that's through commercialization, whether that's through other things. But if you can't communicate to different people, um, you're limited. Like even when I was at Pfizer, the way that I talked to the biologist was very different than the way I talked to the process chemist, which mm-hmm. is very different than the way that I talked to the structural chemist, right? And that was like just in that little world. Yeah, yeah. you're like code switching. Like All you have the to time. know what everybody's like <laughs> interest is and yeah. having to, that's amazing. What's amazing is that you leverage all of that and then worked your way up to be the VP of product strategy at J.P. Morgan Chase? Right. Like, how do you do that? What is, what, what I don't even know that? what that means. <laughs> so I came into a very specific program and pathway at J.P. Morgan Chase. Mm-hmm. And I had a fantastic time there. I'm still, you know, very connected to my mentors and my sponsors there. But Jamie Dimon, who's their CEO, had created this program you know, I, I joke and I say it's to create mini Jamie's because he, <laughs> he had a very strong general management career, but it was basically to cultivate a very strong pipeline of general managers across the firm. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I would rotate across different businesses, mostly um, supporting like the C-suite people in different businesses, different business lines uh, in New York, Hong Kong. And I essentially was a strategic right-hand partner. So I was mm-hmm. a combination of strat, let's help develop the strategy, let's, ha- let's help to execute it. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something that scientists are pretty good at mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. you, you, you set up your lab stuff for, from the first of the week and you're like, these are the experiments I'm going to run. Why? Because I want to mm-hmm. test this theory, this theory, this theory. Okay, get to the end and this is where I analyze my results. And I didn't even right. realize that was a skill set that I had. Yeah, mm-hmm. People are, it's very rare for someone to have a strategy and execution yeah, skill set that, that are both mm-hmm. strong, and so um, I ended up, you know, being getting this really awesome role uh, with the Chase side of you know the, the the bank where I was VP of strategy focused on product, but my role was specifically to build and revamp the digital products for the five million American small businesses that Chase banks. Oh wow! And so that was a huge initiative that I yeah. drove, and that was that was really exciting. Um, learned a ton about <laughs> like interdisciplinary communication, yeah. like, navigating. I didn't need to know all this information about banks, but now I do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. So I think this is maybe kind of how you moved into this more entrepreneurial mindset, right? Because ultimately you created a company that is crazy successful and has been featured all over the internet. So talk us through like how you decided I'm going to make this transition and kind of venture out on my own. It was 
It was a complicated decision. And the irony is that I went to MIT, which is one of the best schools for entrepreneurship. But when I was there, I was like, oh, y'all on this entrepreneurship hype. Like, yeah, I was like, this for the birds. Like right. yeah. yeah, I was like, y'all going to be bros. Like, I'm going to get paid. Like, this is risky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. And what I learned about my skill set is that when I was at JP Morgan Chase, I, they, the way that the execs leveraged me was in a very entrepreneurial role within the firm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was like a resident entrepreneur. I was always assigned to different initiatives where they needed something built, a new division built, new mm-hmm. products built within a place where it didn't exist yeah. or it needed to completely change. And so I started to just like build these things and, you know, continuing on from my science background. But the one thing about, from a content perspective, I would say my entree into entrepreneurship has two components to it. Mm-hmm. One is professional and one is personal. Mm-hmm. From a content perspective, I was going across different parts of the bank. And the bank is big. It's 250,000 mm-hmm. people, which most wow. people do not realize. Yeah, they're, they're massive. They're huge. And one of the things that I saw was that the places of the bank that had the strongest sense of community within those divisions, you know, even driven by the leader or grassroots, you know, just employee engagement, employee community, those are stronger performing divisions, mm-hmm. you know, and those are stronger performing places of the bank. So this whole notion of community that I had grown up with was very material and real. And all of a sudden, I wasn't this creepy millennial who really wanted a community. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, you're seeing how this benefits. Like, the numbers are the numbers. The numbers are the numbers. But also, I grew up in a in a family that really valued community. Mm-hmm. I joke when I tell people, I say, my house was the community center of Chapel Hill, <laughs> North Carolina. Because you have a revolving door. Awesome. Revolving door. Everyone's Children, always adults, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My parents <laughs> took in, like, people that didn't even, that weren't my siblings to so live with us. To, yeah. Discipline. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. all yeah. that stuff. And so, you know, at, at the time, I was just, you know, a little selfish teenager. I was like, I just want to study. It just needs to be quiet. <laughs> so, like, you know, y'all need to go on All these kids making noise. Right. <laughs> um, but the reality is that I look at, I look back on that and the impact that my parents were able to have on the people that they mm-hmm, touch yeah. via the community that they created. It was so powerful. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you, you, like that's data points for years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so then on on the personal side, you know, my my parents have always been about giving back mm-hmm. and giving, you know, what you contribute to this world must be significantly greater than what you take out from yeah. a resource perspective. Which is a phenomenal thing to like have modeled for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because most don't... people, they don't have that inside like in their family unit like they have to go external to their family unit to see that well i think tithing was part of our uh (laughs) allowance like like, oh you get this allowance but right my allowance was only like 40 bucks a week that i had to make work for my car gas food and tithing and i was like four dollars is a lot (laughs) like that's a whole that's a lot couple gallons (laughs) right back then then it was like a couple gallons of gas but my parents you know, in the work that they did, they sponsored a bus trip for kids to visit colleges every single year um, for for about eight years or so. And this one particular year, six years ago, my parents were, actually, I should correct that. They sponsored bus trips for kids to visit the real HU, which is Hampton <laughs> University. Not um, colleges. Yeah, right. not colleges. The, the real, real. HU. Right, the real HU, okay. yeah. 
And uh, six years ago, that bus ran off a straight road and ejected mm. both my parents, actually. And oh my, my dad did not survive the accident. And so when things like that happen to you in life, that just changes your perspective on so much. And one thing that my dad used to, he used to say so many things to me where I was like, oh my God, dad, shut up. Like, I'm so (laughs) tired of hearing like this. I don't care. Like, I'm just trying to read my book. Um, But, you know, one thing that he would say is that, you know, it's your job to, as a blessed person, he used to call, he used to tell me, he was like, Isaac, you were a very blessed girl, mm. you know, and it's your job to share your blessings with as many people as you can while you're on this earth. And another thing that he would say to me was that you think that your time on this earth is like infinite, mm. but it's actually going to go by much more quickly mm. than you think. So what are you going to do to make that impact? And so both of those things are going on. I'm like, this is really interesting. You know, I've seen community in my childhood. I didn't have the words or the maturity to understand what was going on. Mm, And then I saw it materialize in the workplace. And then I also, on my personal side, I came to a place where I was like, you know what? I'm going to live for me. I'm not going to be focused on this like partner track situation. I just need to make sure that I... I'm going to do what God put me on this earth to do. Um, and so that was the impetus for me leaving. Wow. What a powerful yeah. story. That's amazing. Yeah. One of my mentors who's also no longer here to say to whom much is given, much is required. And, right. you know, just it's you don't realize that you don't have the perspective at a young age. And then like like you've been through all of your experiences and you can look back and say, oh, that's what that was about. Right. That's what was happening. That's amazing. Right. And so what we built initially was a tool at Squad, which was formerly invested, but we are Squad officially now, um, was a tool for people to cultivate community in the workplaces. And so you could think of it like a meetup for companies. Mm -hmm. And we had customers like Walmart.com, SeatGeek, JetVivo. Like we were doing really well um, in that product. And the one thing that we we're solving for was how to connect people across the organization. So the way the software would work, you know, Raul could put up a happy hour, Barbara could put up a lunch and learn, Susie could put up, you know, a a wings dinner Mm -hmm. and everybody (laughs) could see what was going on and just sign up for different things through the platform. Um, And it had a crazy high adoption as well. I'm sure. I could, we need that here. The, that's who <laughs> Kyla and I are in Gainesville. Like. I'm telling you, we don't have any high tech, you know, software to and to do it. It's just a whole bunch of text messages and emails. But <laughs> no, but community is so important. Like like you, that's a huge part of my story. Like I had communities at every single phase, mm-hmm. and I look back and I'm like, I would not have gotten through so many things if it wasn't for my communities at all those stages. So having it at work, hmm, yeah, we might have to get squashed. But, <laughs> but we 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 pivoted away yeah, from the workplace. Say it's different now. Yeah. We pivoted away from the workplace because it's really interesting my mindset is so experiment I'm such an experimentalist I'm like I'm gonna have this going have this going as a chemist you should be yeah yeah Yeah. get all the results right this concentration that concentration (laughs) um and we had a side experiment going on where (laughs) we we had the platform but we just opened it up to people in New York City Mm-hmm. and to see what kind of community we would build. We actually just wanted to understand what events people were interested in mm-hmm. so that we can use machine learning to push those 
two Brilliant. people. That yeah. is cool. And what we found was that that community just blew up. Mm. And it like over, like doubled every month. Yeah. What kinds of things were people like the popular things people were putting on there? Um, trivia nights, <laughs> dinner parties. Not like a party party, but like yeah, intimate dinner like, gatherings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, active things. So like yoga in the park, basketball, mm-hmm. improv shows or improv mm. workshops. And one of the things that we decided, I decided, I said there's something going on over here that I can't ignore. There's like a fire like yeah. in the corner yeah. and I'm like looking over here. <laughs> and so I went over to the fire and I said, I will start talking to all the users mm-hmm. um, and spending a lot more time with them. And the one thing we found was that almost everyone was in their twenties and they were responding to the feeling of loneliness mm. and the millennials and Gen Z feel loneliness at a much higher rate um, than the boomers and the Xers. I just I was just so listening to like I don't know if it was a podcast or something online um, that was talking about how loneliness is becoming an industry, mm. and how in particular the millennial population are suffering from it the most. Yeah. And so there are several entities that are looking at ways to leverage that yeah. for their business you know, platform. Like what can we do to address loneliness? And That's so crazy too, because they have so many tools to keep them but engaged. But it's not providing together. the support that people want. But actually the tools are actually very isolating. Yeah. So yeah. people, the, the increase in loneliness, if you look at the data, it directly it correlates directly with the increase in social media use. Yeah, I believe it. And so sure. it's so like easy this. to double tap. Yeah. And we're not we're not engaging with people on a personal level, right? right? Like we're I know a lot of podcasts they'll use like virtual means to record, mm-hmm. but for us, I feel like for me in, in my personal life, like I need to see someone. Yeah. Like I need to be in a room with you to really engage That's with you. That's also generational. Yeah. So my youngest brother's 24. Or something like that. And <laughs> something like that. Mom says twenty five. Oh, okay. <laughs> she she would know. Yeah. Um, and he's a he's a very charming guy, but the dude can like you 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 tell him to like go build this relationship and then ask somebody for coffee, he's like, Huh? Oh wow. He's uh, like, I might be I'll I'll like their posts. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So That sounds he, like my brother. Shout out Scooter Magruder. You know who you are. <laughs> Yeah, I, I understand. He's 30, though, so he doesn't really have an excuse. Yeah. No. But, yeah, I, I see that a lot. So, I said, can you, like, give us a few sentences on what squat is so everyone else can kind of understand what you do? It's really interesting as a founder and as a CEO explaining what the company does and then hearing how people explain it. <laughs> <laughs> Pe- I wouldn't even try because <laughs> I have no concept of how to articulate that well. People have explained Squad as a digital Soho house for millennials uh, and Gen Z. Okay. Whoa. So a place <laughs> that curates, is an exclusive community, so it's mm-hmm. invite only, um, but it's a the platform has private and curated event experiences. Mm-hmm. But the way that you interact with the application is more driven about the event experience. Um, and then it goes into a live phase when the event is actually happening mm. and oh, wow. shows you how to connect with different people. That's cool. awesome. Um, it kind of guides you in that. And so we're essentially, we're launched in New York right now mm-hmm. and we're growing like 
crazy, you know, <laughs> a little bit too crazy. So the fire in the corner is now a wildfire. The fire in the corner is now a wildfire. Okay. I, I went over and I found it and I brought it over. <laughs> and so, um, but we're going to be expanding. We have waitlist active and people are joining the waitlist every single day in, in markets like Los Angeles, mm-hmm. San Francisco, Austin, Boston. London is a big market Austin, that is reaching Boston, out. Yeah. Austin, Boston. Berlin. <laughs> Man, see, the computer scientist in me is like, the scalability of this thing. Oh, yeah. You're alive. You have the servers. You have, like, how, what the do you cloud. Yeah, yeah, we got the, the cloud. cloud. <laughs> yeah. That's the only. We're serverless now, too. So, basically, mm. we use AWS Lambda. Mm-hmm where we're able to dial up or dial down the number of servers that we use. And AWS is Amazon Web Services. Amazing cloud support for just about everything. This is not a sponsored ad. (laughs) 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 We just like AWS. (laughs) No, I think that's great that you, because I'm sitting here like, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So thank you. Yeah. Okay, that's that's amazing. So people in New York get to have it. And the rest of us get to wait. Yeah. How do they get to be like, what's the process? Somebody recommends you and then we've been prioritizing referrals mm-hmm. um, okay. because I just to give you numbers, like even in like the last week and a half, 1200 applications came in. Wow. Whoa. So we don't have the bandwidth to do all, do yeah. all that. So how large is your team? Yeah. Team is about 10 people. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. And even if everybody took 120 applications. But I need my engineers to build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, That is so much. It's a lot. Yeah. We need to, like, uh, create a little squad, squad of our IMCS people oh, and be like, yeah. here, go help ISA right. and her team. Exactly. All the computer scientists. That'd oh, I'll cool. take them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got work. Good to know. <laughs> and we will throw them. So, so how do you manage that? How do you manage being a CEO you've created community for other people what is your community like like how are you balancing that kind of thing that was a struggle for me when I first started as an entrepreneur and I think that I hear a lot of people talk about their desire to be an entrepreneur and they talk about their idea and the excitement but it's just as much of a personal sacrifice and personal struggle that goes with that Mm -hmm. and I didn't really have a lot of discipline around taking care of myself when I first started. Mm. And so I remember there was a time where I was literally only sleeping three hours a night for oh like months god. at oh a time. Oh my god, that is not sustainable at all. And so I got a, I got like sick for the first time. I got a stomach ulcer. Sick. Oh no. Wow, that's, that's pretty serious. And so I went to the doctor and he was like, this is a stress-induced stomach mm-hmm. ulcer. And I was like, I don't think you get it. I was like, my name is Isa Watson. I don't get stressed. I get stuff done. Right. I was like, if you don't yes. know, you better ask anybody around who knows. But Let I don't get stressed. Let them know. And yeah. he was like, Isa, that is not how your body yeah, sees your body it. is telling you differently. Yeah. And so um, I, you know, I went through a phase where I said, I have to learn what a process of taking care of myself looks like. Mm-hmm. I got really into med- meditation. That's been incredibly helpful. So I go to mm-hmm. meditation class about three to four times a week. Cool. Um, I see my therapist every Tuesday and I'm very open about it with my team. I'm like, yeah. every, every Tuesday, at six o'clock, they know they're like, Oh, we know you gotta go see Dr. Mel. They're mm-hmm. like, how's Dr. Mel? You know? <laughs> and, um, and I also have a life coach that I see twice a month. And so that was my kind of, you know, community to help me. But even from a friend perspective, you know, when you go through these phases in your life and 
you someone was really good for one particular season Mm -hmm. and that they may not be vibing and you know jiving with you for the next season and so even figuring out who were the best friends to have around and I'm not gonna lie to you you know as an entrepreneur what I need personally is empathy Mm -hmm. you know there's certain things that happen where I just need people to be understanding yeah you know I may back out of a dinner on Friday because I'm just so exhausted and then my investor called me from San Francisco upset about this particular metric and I just really need time to recoup yeah Mm -hmm. like can I take a rain check but you'd be surprised how many people will like get so mad and like take the shame yeah yeah and that's same sort of here like they're content with you being in this one box but then once you know things get crazy and stuff may happen they're like oh no you you didn't show up for me and it's like look I'm taking care of me right yeah I think that comes with being someone who's high achieving right not every person can walk that lifestyle with you like they just can't one because it it kind of opens up this window into your insecurities too right when you see somebody who's excelling and you might not feel like you're excelling at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have people who don't know how to deal with that. Right. And then you have people who they just want your life for better or worse. And yeah. it's like, you can't, we can't all be the same person. Right. You know, our unique qualities about like what we're capable of and what we're interested in and all those things is what makes the world interesting and valuable and worth being a part of. Yeah. I like, even tell that to my team. I'm like, everyone, you need to show up as you are yeah. who you are. Like, yeah. I don't want you to try to be something that you're not. That's yeah. not fun for me or fun for the team. But on the community side, I found that in the last three years, the new friends that I've had are almost all founders. Wow. Because mm. y'all understand each other. And, and there's, a the crazy. <laughs> there's a lot of crazy. There's a lot of crazy. So um, there's like a, it's a unique type of crazy that like, <laughs> even my mom doesn't understand it, you know? But someone told me that the phrase that I heard, um, about just like friendships and being high achieving, the people who matter don't mind and mm-hmm. the people who mind don't matter. Yeah. So it's like a, I mean, it's very hard and fast cut and dry rule, but that's what, you know, that's what it usually boils down to. Yeah. That's real. Cause I know I had to cut some people loose. Mm-hmm. Because they were weighing me down. Mm -hmm. They were adding to my stress instead of helping alleviate my stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that you're so open about going to therapy and having somebody who's there to support your mental and emotional health. Because that's something in our community we really shy away from. And we shouldn't. There's a reason that people get degrees. Right. And counseling and psychology (laughs) to be able to support people. And when you're high achieving, oftentimes it's very difficult to notice that someone is going through a stressful situation. Right. Or is experiencing something that they really need to get help for. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we just don't show it, right? Like, we just walk through our day-to-day, and we're excellent and still achieving. And and we're trained that way. We're trained that we we can't be vulnerable because if you see us slipping, then that's like... But, you know, my mom and I have had this conversation. I've been open with her about this. But I remember asking to go to therapy when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, what you need to do is go to Sunday school (laughs) on time and get up and get dressed like I told you. What you need is Jesus, not a therapist. What you need is Jesus, and you need to stop playing, like, out here. 
And yeah. there's but Christian a, counselors are a whole thing, so you <laughs> yeah, can do yeah, both. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's this thing that therapy is for white people, and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's for everybody. Yeah, yeah. like you know? I'm like, why are you gonna go tell that white man all your problems? Like, that's the general <laughs> consensus a lot sometimes in yeah. black in households. Like, but there are black therapists. Yes, so. there are. my therapist is black. Yeah, mm-hmm. I tried to find one. There's like a black therapist, like um, oh. you know, database. Yes, but Gainesville. I found I found my therapist on that. Wow, there's zero point zero in Gainesville. Yeah. Yeah, there's one. Come to New York. I got you for the, for the university. Oh yeah, maybe she's not mm-hmm. on the uh, database. Probably not. It's very hard. But yeah, just all in all, it's important for people to just get out there, see a therapist, just talk to somebody. You mm-hmm. know, it's not this huge taboo thing. It's okay to be vulnerable too. Absolutely. <laughs> so for people who are out there that you know want to start their own tech company, like how did you? get started how did you do this it started off probably as an idea in your head and you got all the way to this widely growing you know company like how did you do this it all generally starts with an idea when it starts out correct because <laughs> you hear those people that are like i don't want to be an entrepreneur because i want to be my own boss right or i don't i don't want no corporate politics but the reality <laughs> is that if you raise money you have a ton of politics you know oh yeah and so I think that it's first about coming up with a gap in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily think every a lot of people say in Silicon Valley, what's the big problem that you are addressing, mm-hmm. right? And some things don't even seem like that big of a problem because what what problem was Facebook really addressing? <laughs> That's a good point. You know what problem was even Slack really addressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but come up with a gap in the market that you're passionate about, that you are comfortable thinking about this 26 out of 24 hours of the day. <laughs> because that's that's how much you really have to fit in. Yeah. Got it. And the one thing that I find, you know, one, one question I get from a lot of black entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurs in general, a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, the first thing they ask me is, how'd you raise money? And I'm like, yeah. that is, should not be your first question. Really? You, it should not be. I think so. I mean, like, if you don't have a good idea, but the, however much money you raise doesn't matter. That's right? true. But the reality is that it's not even about the money. It's like, what have you shown to demonstrate that this is interesting enough that people use it? There's so many tools that are free mm-hmm. or very cheap to use. So let's say you don't have a coding background and I have this idea for an, for an app. I can actually go to Envision mm-hmm. and sketch and sketch out an app. Yep. And it, you can download it to your phone, make it clickable, and watch people click through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And so, and then you can take that and see if you can get some type of traction, right? So it's becoming harder and harder to raise money because investors have a much higher uh, demand and bar for what traction is. And for people that don't know what traction is, it's demonstrated revenue or demonstrated users, user acquisition, mm-hmm. et cetera. People are using your product and people are paying for your product. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, like I said, starting with a gap, try to dem- demonstrate some traction and try to do it with your own money first mm-hmm. if you can. You know, do a little church fundraiser or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think it's about finding strong angel investors. We raised three and a half million dollars from Silicon Valley. Wow. And that's not the first step. The first step is finding people who generally have some level of net worth where they can just write $25,000 checks, write Mm $10,000 checks, and get them to believe in you so you can get a little bit more money to get more traction. Mm -hmm. And then use that to then go to VCs. 
And um, so I think it's, yeah. It's so funny. It like parallels with like being an assistant professor. Like <laughs> we get this little startup package. You do your little research, show that it's viable, show that, you know, there's, you get step one of the data done and then you apply for this bigger amount of money. But it's, there's so many parallels. And uh, Angelique Johnson, <laughs> oh, yeah. who's Shout out one to of Angie. Kyla's friends, came on recently and <laughs> she talked about how, you know, not every angel investor is the right angel investor for you. Oh, that's a huge point. You can't take just anybody's money. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've turned around, I've turned away more money than I was able to take this last round. (laughs) What? This last round, (laughs) I had six or $7 million that was on the table. And so I had to push out half of the money. And when you, when I think about an angel investor, here's what I think about. And I think this is so Mm -hmm. important. And, we can't be desperate here. We have to be super, this is super critical. Mm-hmm. The person needs to deliver some value to you. Like mm-hmm. they have a great network or I'm in this specific topic and they're an expert or they just believe in you. Like there's an mm-hmm. angel investor I have where she just, she just calls me and says nice things and it Aww. feels good. Yeah. And I rarely ever talk to her about the business yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to talk about it all the time. Right, you right. know. Um, the second thing is that they need, you need to trust them and know that they'll have your back because reality is, you know, Uber has done it at like massive levels of like mm-hmm. mess ups. A lot of companies have mess ups at lower levels, but who's going to be in your corner and have your back? Mm-hmm. So you have to think, are they decent people? Are they people you can trust? Are they people that you can have open, honest communication with? Right. And so yeah. I think that those are kind of what should shape how you choose angel investors as opposed to like, that person's, yeah, that person's in, that person's right. in. That, you can't take everyone's money. You wouldn't get married to everybody. Right. Facts. Don't be thirsty when it comes to this investment. Facts. Right. So, but the thing about Facts. it is that, like, when you take someone's money, you were, like, married to them for, yeah. like, a long time. And right? what yeah. strings are attached to that money exactly. right. that you may or may not want to be attached to. Right. right. Yeah. Long term. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. My investors say when they signed with me, they had the assumption that they were in with me for 10 years. I was like, 10 years? Wow. Yeah, they were like, <laughs> we made a commitment to you for 10 years. That's what that's what this money represents. Well, that's wow. great. So it's about relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's really about like having a solid foundation, not just flying by the wind of... What is it? The seat of your pants. Thank you. <laughs> it is about relationships, but I don't want to. I don't want to overemphasize relationships because the reality is that in the black community, we're starting behind well, yeah. in a lot of these relationships. It took yeah. me with all the degrees that I have from MIT, Cornell, Hampton, et cetera. It took me two years of nonstop meetings to really penetrate Silicon Valley mm. in a meaningful way. But you now found a, a way to make relationships with people, and I, I yeah. I don't think any business exists without legitimate relationships. Yeah. That's true, but I think that a lot of people is just rely on the relationships that they have. So, oh, and, yeah. I, and, and I think there's a ones. there's a very like hustle mentality that you need to have mm-hmm. to like go out here and build relationships very strategically. Yeah. And the trick to knowing if you're building really great relationships, and I always tell everyone in their twenties is when you meet that person, and you you end the meeting with that person, how many people has that person said they want you to meet that's in their Mm -hmm. network too? Mm -hmm. So it becomes this like network effect, almost like synapses in the brain, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that was how I ended up with like hundreds of meetings in Silicon Valley. And now our earliest investor, um, our lead investor is 
you know, the firm called Harrison Metal, and they were the earliest institutional capital into Birchbox and and Harry's. Oh, wow. Harry's just exited yesterday for one point four billion dollars. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Heroku. Oh wow. He was the earliest institutional capital in Heroku, and so mm-hmm. like he's very well known and well respected. Mm-hmm. His name is Michael Deering, but. Again, it took a long. I didn't like. I, I didn't wake up one day and like was all of a sudden in his network. It took <laughs> right. a long time yeah. for me to like. And people don't hustle. Get that. Yeah, they and, think I'm gonna do this one pitch and then they're gonna be wowed and give me their money. Like it's a it's, it's a marathon. Work. Like you yeah. have to. And your yeah. reputation precedes you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before people have met, before I meet people, they have heard a lot about me. And so I've seen a lot of decks go around. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of emails go around between investor communities mm-hmm. of people that just have really big mess ups of things. Mm-hmm. You know. What kind of mess up? You don't have to name names, but like, what are some mistakes that people make? Um, so one mistake is even how they engage with investors, like being too aggressive. Mm-hmm. Oh, you didn't you didn't answer my email, so I assume you know that I'm, I take a conclusion that you actually don't care Ooh. about what you know. People pop off at the yeah. mouth, and it's not personal. Like I didn't answer your email because I had nine hundred ninety nine <laughs> other emails, and I just didn't get to it. That's why I didn't right. answer your email. Or um, the decks not being very clear mm-hmm. about what it is they're trying to do or a market is they're like, I have a can you four t- trillion yeah. dollar market. What a deck is it's a slide so deck. So a pitch deck, if you're going out to raise capital for angels or for um institutional or VCs, is uh Essentially, you probably build it in PowerPoint, mm-hmm. but it's a series of pages that tell the story of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. What's the idea? What's the problem? How big is the market mm-hmm. um, that you're going after? Can can this be a $400 million business? Can it be a $4 billion business? Um, and then who your team is and yeah. what you're trying to raise money and what that gets you. Yeah. Yeah. So having that be solid is obviously oh, yeah. important because it speaks for you. It speaks for you. Yeah, because usually you give them a copy of it like after you've left. And if there's typos or it's just not clear what you're doing, you know, like you said, clarity is huge. Yeah. Well, yeah. Isa, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Podcast. Was there anything else you wanted people like to know that's coming up next? What should they look out for? Well, if people are interested in our awesome community <laughs> um, at Squad, I would encourage them to submit applications to our website, which is withyoursquad.com, withyoursquad.com. And in the reference, um, when they say who referred you, just put um, modern figures. Modern figures. Oh, we get our so that way I can yeah, <laughs> put modern figures. That way I'll, I'll have our team ping it so that we bring those applications to the top. Cool. So how can people follow you online or on social media? You can follow me at, on, I'm mostly on Instagram and then I'm like somewhat on Twitter. <laughs> so I'm at Isa, I-S-A-D, as in Diane Watson, at, yeah, I was going to say at Gmail. No, that's not, that's, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm at Isa D. Watson. But we'll link it too on the website. On LinkedIn and Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Wait. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. And thanks, thanks for having mom. me. Yeah, thanks, thanks mom. <laughs> As always, you can find us on our website at modernfigurespodcast.com, where you can also purchase items from our online store. Send us questions via email at askus at modernfigurespodcast.com. The podcast is also on social media. Just search for Modern Figures Podcast. And you can find Kyla and I on Twitter. Kyla is at Dr. Underscore Kyla. And I'm at Jeremy Waysup. Until next time, stay hydrated, moisturized, and protect your peace. peace.